Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And before I begin today, I want to just start by reminding you that there is a website that comes uh, with this podcast. It's called wealthformula.com. And if you've not had a chance to go there, I highly encourage you to do so because really that is, uh, you know, that's where there's a bunch of resources that we don't necessarily hit uh, in the podcast itself. And it also gives you a chance to participate at multiple levels. In other words, there are uh, various things that you can sign up for. There are webinars there that you can sign up for that are on asset protection, or maybe there's some tax stuff, there's books to download, et cetera, et cetera. It's also where you would sign up for the accredited investor club where, as you may know by now, that's where the magic happens. If you are an accredited investor, um, then that's where, you know, all of this theoretical stuff that we talk about on this show really comes to life. And that is our private network limited to people who are accredited. Now, who's accredited? Do you have to, you know, take a test or something? Well, not really. Uh, generally speaking, it's a it's just a matter of whether or not you meet the criteria. The criteria generally are that you make $200,000 per year or more if filing by yourself or 300000 if filing jointly for at least two years with the reasonable expectation of doing so in the future or you have a million dollars of net worth outside your personal residence. If you meet those criteria, you are accredited. You aren't, you know, it's like you're, you know, I always say it's it's like you're either pregnant or, or you're not. You don't apply for it. You just are. You are not. And in this case, if you meet those criteria, you are. Now, there are some additional ways you can become accredited, and um, you may want to look those up. But I think if you get some various financial designations now, uh, this is just in the last year, uh, you, you know, you, you get your series, whatever, whatnot, and then, then that counts as being accredited too. And, and if that's the case, then you can jo join as well. Obviously I've not taken a lot of time, uh, to find out what that is. And that's in part because, you know, listen, what we do does require, uh, fairly significant investments. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you, you generally do need to be accredited. You do need to have those financial, um, you know, uh, qualifications as well as a general rule, I would say. Now, 
the other thing you can do, though, is if you are interested in, you know, taking your education to the next level, and I'm not talking about just a, a you know, flow of investments per se. I'm talking about, you know, just working on your financial IQ, your, um, you know, your your acumen for uh, high level financial strategy, et cetera. Uh, we do have a course called Your Roadmap to Real Wealth, and that uh, includes membership into what we call Wealth Formula Network. Wealth Formula Network is really a phenomenal little private group that we have. There's probably about 90 people signed up for it, and um, it's not a very big group, but it's a very powerful group of individuals who are super into talking shop about personal finance. And if that is something that you'd like to do and talk to others, uh, you know, we do these biweekly Zoom uh, conference calls. We do, you know, we have a Facebook group, et cetera. You know, join the crew. I, I always say the best person for this is the person who likes to geek out on personal finance and strategies and all this investment stuff. But you know, your friends and family, maybe your your spouse is not interested in this stuff, so you end up uh, not being able to talk to anybody. Well, if that's you, this is your perfect group. You can check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as far as today goes, uh, let's begin with that. And it is our first episode of the fourth quarter Ask Buck series. This started out as just sort of a random show once in a while, but we accumulate so many questions that I don't know how many Ask Buck shows we're going to have here for Q4, but it's probably going to take most of the rest of the year. And um, uh, by the way, if you're curious, this is kind of, you know, this is the kind of question answer stuff that we do in that Wealth Formula Network I just mentioned, except that it's not just me talking. There's a bunch of other, you know, there's a bunch of smart uh, people who can add their uh, their take as well. So uh, we'll we'll get to uh, a lot of these questions today, but I think it's going to be multiple weeks of it. Uh, and we'll start with the first uh, set of these questions of Ask Buck when we come back from the following messages. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. 
If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And uh, again, this is the first episode of Ask Buck for the fourth quarter. And I don't know how many there's going to be. There'll probably be three at least, maybe four. Who knows? We'll have to see. But this week, what I really wanted to do is to try to address questions, for the most part, that had you know some level of time pressure on them. And as you can imagine, a lot of these questions are uh, in in the in, in about you know end of the year tax planning and mitigation tax mitigation and that kind of thing. Now, and I, that being said, I should tell you right now, even though I talk a lot about this kind of stuff, I am not a CPA. So anything that I say, I don't want you to construe as tax or legal advice. Uh, I just, you know, I'm telling you my own experience and I happen to have a really good CPA in, in Tom Wheelwright, but um, anything I say, you should go through your own uh, tax professional to make sure uh, that those kinds of things are uh, kosher for you as well. So uh, with that, I'm going to start. There's a series of written questions. There's some that are MPEGs, and so we'll play those as well. I'm going to start with a question from Sean Adams, who Sean says, uh, hey, uh, been reading a lot of Buck's tax-saving ideas and love the approach for passive investing depreciation. Uh, I know these strategies are particularly most effective for business owners. Uh, any advice or resources for high-paid W-2 employees? I've owned businesses in the past and deliberately returned to an individual contributor sales role because it suits me better. Keep up the tremendous content. Really enjoying it, Sean. Okay. Thank you, Sean. appreciate that. And well, let me just start out by saying that there, um, do your, you know, when you say that you had businesses, but it suited you better to be, I guess, an employee, I do hope that, uh, and I'm assuming you know this, but there, there is a happy medium between being a business owner, you know, and having a bunch of employees and, um, you know, and, and, a and a W2 income guy, because, you know, as you know, even if you did sales and I think you said you're in sales, uh, but you did it as a you know, as a independent contractor that got paid into an entity, you'd certainly have a lot more options than you do as a W-2 income uh, earner. Uh, that said, I think it is a good time to review uh, what options people do have uh, this late in the game with just really a couple of weeks left uh, in the 2020 year to really execute anything. And you know, just starting with what you talked about uh, as a W-2 wage earner, well, what are the strategies that, um, you know, are available to you? Well, you are right on when you say that they're pretty limited. Uh, they are very limited. But let's talk about some of the things that are out there. And and um, and I'll give you my two cents on that. I mean, we, you know, there's, there's oil and gas uh, that's not controversial at all. Uh, in the sense that, you know, there's not any, uh, you know, there's nothing that you have to worry about with the IRS or anything like that. Um, if you invest in oil and gas, in many cases, there's drilling involved. Uh, and uh, normally, um, you know, with these kinds of things, uh, you know, there is there is depreciation. But because of the whole bonus depreciation availability to us right now, uh, you can take the full, in, in many cases, take the full amount of your investment 
and write it off in the first year. Um, so I should point out that this type of bonus depreciation usually is not something that you can write off against W-2 income, but the oil and gas lobby is a strong one. I'll tell you that much. And, um, you know, there's a lot of reason for, you know, a very favorable oil and gas um, tax law. And a lot of it has to do with our own desire uh, to become energy independent. We've certainly reached these kinds of goals where we're now a net exporter in this country. But, um, you know, I think that's that's probably the big one that, uh, you know, I, I certainly have done it in the past when I initially uh, got out of training and I had a lot of ordinary income uh, and some of it was W-2 as well. So that's that's an option. Um, and like I said, normally bonus depreciation from investments is not something that can be used uh, to offset W-2 income, but oil and gas is favorable uh, in, in this regard. Um, I would uh, tell you that, you know, I would refer you if this is a topic that's of interest to you on a recent podcast I did. It was the last one on oil and gas. Just go back a week or two. And it was Tom Powell, the founder of Resolute Capital. Uh, and we talked about it. And I, I think they're, um, you know, they're, uh, they're, they're one of the, one of the operators in this area that I think is probably worth getting to know. And certainly, I should remind you, too, that I, I don't invest in oil and gas myself. I mean, I have the real estate professional designation, uh, which allows all of my passive losses to offset active income as well. And that's because I spend most of my time doing real estate. And um, therefore, something like oil and gas that has, frankly, quite a bit more volatility, has quite a bit more risk. Uh, than our real estate projects, it's really just not that appealing to me. However, if I was a W-2 guy, I'd probably consider, you know, something that had a structure like uh, Resolute, a team like Resolute. Uh, and so again, I would I would suggest you go back and listen to that uh, that podcast a few uh, weeks ago with Tom uh, Powell. The only other real opportunity for uh, offsetting W-2. Uh, income over the past few years for you know high net worth people uh, has been this uh, uh, has been conservation easements and I almost uh, you know I, I always kind of uh, feel a little uncomfortable talking about conservation easements on the show because they are uh, pretty controversial the IRS h- hates them so what are they well they're a kind of uh, charitable giving, so to speak, where you can essentially, essentially write off four or five dollars for every dollar you put into it. Um, so as you can imagine, uh, you can get a pretty substantial type of write-off against all kinds of income, um, you know, including W-2 income with this kind of thing. And in a lot of states, like California even recognizes them so they can impact your state taxes. Now, again, the IRS hates them. We have, uh, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do them, but I am definitely not going to tell you to do them either. I'm not going to give you any advice on this. Um, in the past, I've been a little bit more neutral. I have participated, but there is enough IRS attacks and legislative flux this year where I would personally personally, not feel comfortable uh, with conservation easements per se. Now, if I really needed something like this, which I don't because, again, 
I have structured myself in a way where I am incentivized to invest in real estate, which is really awesome, frankly. Um, you know, if I really wanted to do something like this and need it, I would consider something similar to a conservation easement that we've talked about within Investor Club. If again, it's another reason to join our accredited investor club. Uh, it's called a fee simple gift. And that is something that I think uh, if it were me, I would definitely not be doing conservation easements right now. I would be doing a fee simple gift because of the attacks and even the legislation that threatens um, threatens conservation easements actually does not include uh, you know talk about these fee simple gifts. So so I think right now, if it were me, that's what I would be considering. I would not be doing conservation easements this year. Um, so, so that's what I would tell you. Now, this um, this stuff again is pretty complicated. Uh, all of this stuff, when I talk about with oil and gas, and certainly with conservation easements and fee simple gifts, etc., it's really stuff just for accredited investors. If you're not accredited, you're kind of out of luck, I think. Um, and I should remind you again, if you're interested, you should join uh, Accredited Investor Club because this is the kind of stuff we talk about. We don't just have deal flow, but we also have educational webinars on this kind of thing. And we did have one on Fee Simple Gifts. So if you're an accredited investor and you were trying to figure this stuff out, um, join the group. And if you missed the webinar, shoot me an email and I will get that link out to you for the replay on, on Fee Simple Gifts. So um, let me just end by on this question by saying that my personal strategies for this year are really, really related to bonus depreciation and, well, more bonus depreciation. Uh, I mean, that is really, really my focus. So, you know, I've acquired a lot of real estate with a lot of losses because of cost segregation and analysis and bonus depreciation. And I've also invested quite a bit in our WF Velocity ATM fund where you you know you can take 100% of your investment and bonus depreciation first year. Now, we don't have any more real estate in Investor Club uh, that is closing in 2020 so that you can get more uh, bonus depreciation if you can use it. However, you can still participate in the WF Velocity ATM fund if you're an accredited investor, it's a Reg D506C offering. Uh, and if you if you get your funds in by December 20th, you can still take 100% bonus uh, depreciation on your investment. So, so go to wfvelocity.com if you're interested in that. But this, again, um, this strategy, again, is predicated on you having passive income. And and I just want to reiterate something that I think will be an ongoing theme uh, that if I can get uh, people to to really kind of uh, digest, I think I'll be doing you a great service. That is, in my opinion, um, I'm hoping where most of you focus your time is in the in the development or in the uh, creation, I should say, of passive income. You know, the cleanest, least controversial ways to mitigate your tax bill for the you know year is ultimately through strategies using passive income and taking passive losses against it. Even if bonus depreciation, if and when it goes away, and it will, you still have 
you know, accelerated losses through cost segregation analysis, et cetera, that you can, you know, really run on what we call this golden hamster wheel. So, you know, passive income, just as a reminder, can be from ancillary income like surgical centers and infusion centers too. You know, it doesn't have to be just from real estate. Um, you know, obviously our ATMs are passive income as well, but, you know, uh, I think that I, I think it's really important. I think if you go back and listen to our recent, uh, our most recent interview with Tom Wheelwright, where we really focused in on the concepts of creating passive income, that is where I truly believe that you should be spending your time if you can't be, you know, a real estate professional, because you really need to build this thing that we call passive income. And many of you actually have it, and it has just not been uh, recognized that. that. And in that case, sometimes you may need a new CPA. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you focus on creating passive income now, uh, I'm going to guarantee pretty much that you're going to do yourself a big favor. I mean, that's not tax or legal advice. It's nothing. I'm just telling you, I, I truly believe that. Um, it's actually something that you can actually ramp up pretty quickly if you can figure out how to do it. Um, I have to tell you, just from my ATM machines alone, I've got I've racked up six figures of passive income per year because the return is um, so rapid in terms of how quickly you get your money back in your pocket. Now, I have businesses where I also spend you know very few hours per year that are passive in nature. Um, you know, there, there's lots of things you can do, and I know a lot of you are doing it, and some of you are doing it again. You've got passive businesses, but you're for some reason, your tax professionals are not counting it as that. It's very doable if you put your mind to it. So I'll leave it at that. Now, the next question is from uh, Nick Sexton. Uh, Nick asks, when developing an entity producing an ancillary stream of income, so obviously this is a related question to our last topic, uh, such as an uh, ambulatory surgical center, x-ray you know, center or whatever, is there anything specific that needs to be legally declared or structured in the operating agreement or anywhere else in order to confirm the distributions will be considered passive for the stakeholders? The motivation, of course, would be to take advantage of the suspended passive real estate losses. And again, I think this is, um, uh, this is again, uh, a very important topic. Uh, and I should again preface this by saying I can't give you specific legal or tax advice. I can just tell you that the key is really, um, really what it comes down to is that is there material participation in the activity? So, in my own case, I have a cosmetic surgery business in Chicago. Um, and I don't practice in it. I live in California after all. I'm on a call once per week. Maybe I get a, a you know, an occasional, uh, you know, occasional involvement in a marketing strategy or something like that. But all in all, it's probably less than 75 hours per year uh, for me that goes into that business. And so it's passive. Um, now, you can check and you should check with your CPA on what constitute material activity, but that's, that's the key word, right? It's really, for the most part, these things are all about whether or not you spend material time, material activity in these 
how much time you spend in these businesses. I mean, think about what the real estate professional designation is, making it an active business. 750 hours per year minimum, and you do nothing more actively. That's you know essentially what a real estate professional is. So that's what makes something passive, which is most real estate investments into something that's active. So think about the opposite of that. Again, I don't want to give you specific advice on this, but it's something you really should absolutely discuss with your CPA. And again, that is, uh, you know, for legal reasons, uh, I don't want to give you any kind of advice. However, again, uh, you know, if you go back to this show that Tom Wheelwright was on a couple of weeks ago where we talked about passive income, um, we, we talked about ways to structure your businesses legally uh, to take advantage of, of passive income that you may not uh, that you may not be recognizing right now. And every medical business, for example, and I know I don't you know, I don't I don't know if you're necessarily I can't remember if you're a physician or not, but every medical business has medical equipment. Right. And now, is there a reason why the equipment uh, that you have? in your office couldn't be owned by a separate entity where your primary business has to lease the equipment from how about the same leasing company you know acting as a marketing company or maybe it does payroll and it gets paid for that anyway listen i don't again <laughs> i don't want to give you any specifics here but again you are um you know when it comes to this stuff i will just tell you that you are only limited by the limitations of skill of your cpa and I've sent people to my CPA where he has literally saved them six or even seven figures simply by restructuring what they are already doing in terms of, of people's businesses. And of course, you know, Tom Wheelwright is not probably uh, for everybody, uh, but, you know, I, I would suggest, um, you know, contacting WealthAbility uh, in the WealthAbility Network. Let them know if you do, by the way, if you go to WealthAbility.com that you're you know, with us so that, uh, you know, you get a little extra TLC because obviously I'm pretty close with Tom. So anyway, but going back to the basic question that you had about what is passive, I would just say, get the definition of an active business or, you know, uh, from your CPA, uh, which should be the opposite of a passive one. Uh, and it has to do again, primarily with material participation and fundamentally, you got to ask your CPA, okay, what is it going to take for you to feel comfortable saying that this is a passive business? Because at the end of the day, it's your CPA who is filing your taxes and who's going to potentially represent you in some kind of an audit, right? So it doesn't even matter what I say in that regard, okay? So hopefully that's helpful. The next question is from Jim McCracken, and, and Jim says, hey, Buck, Oil and gas drilling investments are popular this time of the year for investors with uh, active income. What are your thoughts on its three to five year risk profile with WTI currently around $40? For example, do you see a $100,000 investment as a good bet with upside or a significant risk given oil demand might never come back to previous levels? Um, these funds typically have a four to six year hold horizon question mark this is aside from the risk of hitting a dry spot and not finding oil thanks all right jim um well again not giving you financial advice here uh, because uh you know i'm legally not uh, allowed to do that however uh let me just say this 
I have never to your to your question about you know is there a good upside you know good bet with upside. I have never, Jim, seen oil and gas investments as a good bet. I just haven't until you know, and until I found Resolute Capital again, Tom Paul's group. I wasn't even interested in interviewing anyone on the topic anymore because I really was concerned that people were just going to lose money as, you know, I had early on. I mean, I invested in oil and gas probably a decade ago. And yeah, I got the tax write-off, but no, I never saw any money from that again. So um, listen, here's why. First of all, there's volatility. I mean, you you address that. We don't know what oil prices are going to be, especially right now. Um, and so that creates an inherent risk. But um Right now, I will say that I think it's probably less of a concern, that particular issue of volatility. If you consider you know, a, a three to four year horizon, for example, and I know that's what I think Resolute really uh, does, Tom Powell's group. So if you listen to um, uh, that podcast again, the oil and gas one I did with uh, Tom a, a couple episodes, uh, Tom Powell about oil and gas a few episodes back, um, you know, he talks about this. Now, Tom's a pretty smart guy. He's a really smart guy. So that's one of the reasons I, you know, like talking to him on this topic, even though I'm not an oil and gas guy myself. But, you know, there does appear to be uh, a demand issue that's creeping into the picture, uh, which uh, and also a, a shortage in supply just from what happened uh, in the last, you know, several months where uh, it seems like prices will likely go up from where they currently are in the next three to four years um, or, you know, certainly not go down. But again, it's all sort of speculation. So at that point, you know, I think if you say that prices will, you know, at least probably stay where they are or go higher, I think the bigger problem that I see with most oil and gas investments is that they operate uh, on you know, this kind of heads we win, tails you lose philosophy where, you know, most of the oil and gas operators out there make sure they are heavily compensated up front and then go drilling, right? It's like wildcatting. Um, and if if you if, if they don't find oil, then well, well, at least they still got paid. And if they do find oil, then they'll split the profits with you on top of that. So they win and win again. Um, this is usually not like real estate, where even if there is a promote, of course there's a promote, there is, but there's also an underlying asset that has value that you are buying. It's not drilling for oil. Now, again, uh, I should point out that one of the reasons that I have featured you know, Resolute on the show is because they are different. Uh, they buy many working wells, do some drilling, and essentially what their goal is to flip the wells like real estate. So they also have huge amounts of skin in the game, I should mention as well, because that's really important. They don't take upfront fees. Uh, you know, I know Tom's got, uh, Tom Powell's, uh, personally got millions of dollars in these, in, in, in what they're doing. So anyway, if I'm investing in oil and gas, which I'm not, <laughs> that's probably the, that, you know, that, that resolute model is probably the type of model that I'd be looking for. I would just say that the vast majority of these oil and gas guys, especially those in the podcast ecosystem, are very concerning to me, and I would consider them uh, radioactive at best. So 
Uh, Resolute is probably the only one that I'm not suspicious of. And again, it's, you know, uh, listen to Tom Powell on that podcast and, you know, make your own judgment on that. Let's see. Let's move on to the next question. This one is uh, going to be an audio question. Yeah. Hi, Buck. This is Dave from Sonoma, California. Uh, thanks so much for all the great content you continue to provide for us. Um, I know you spent a lot of time in the past talking about the real estate professional designation and passive income gains versus passive activity losses. And I especially liked uh, the recent conversation with Tom Wheelwright regarding um, asking the question, how can I convert at least some of my active income to passive income? Um, it seems that either me or my wife getting the REP real estate professional status is sort of the holy grail here because my understanding is it would allow us to offset active income from either of us with passive losses. So this year I've been an active participant in some of investor clubs offerings and I'm expecting pretty significant K1 losses for 2020. But as I investigate ways to use these losses, other than just carrying them forward until I have passive gains, as in your golden hamster wheel analogy, which I, I realize is not a bad way to go. Um, I seem to be getting some conflicting information. I've spoken with a few different CPAs and I keep being told that generally speaking, if I'm a limited partner in a syndication, that these losses will not receive ordinary income treatment, even if I do qualify as a real estate professional. That basically once I have real estate professional status, I must actively participate in each activity in order to deduct the losses. So if this is true, this test would be hard for me to pass as an LP in a syndication investment. So I know you're not a CPA and can't give tax advice, but I'd just like to get some clarification on this point and was wondering if you could speak to your interpretation of this. Uh, thanks, Buck. So Dave, as you mentioned, uh, I can't, I'm not a CPA and I can't give tax advice. I have to keep saying that over and over again. Uh, Tom Wilwright likes to remind me to, 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 to point that out all the time. So I do. Um, however, I can tell you um, that my CPA tells me that once you have established yourself as a real estate professional, and what I mean by that is that, again, you've got the material activity. You know, you've got to have material activity. You cannot, uh, you cannot become a real estate professional just by investing in limited partnerships. However, let's say now you've got you know, a few apartment buildings or whatever real estate and you're racking up hours, et cetera. Um, my understanding and what my CPA, who you know, tells me is that once you have done that, then your uh, limited partnerships uh, in real estate will go in that same bucket effectively as the other real estate activity. And it's no longer just an issue of, you know, an LP thing. Now, as far as the LPs that you're currently in before you have any real estate professional designation, uh, my understanding is those are trapped as, as passive, uh, you know, uh, passive losses. You can't go back and collect those once you have a designation. But what I'm telling you is that, um, again, uh, my CPA, who you know, disagrees with your CPA. Uh, however, um, again, you know, LPs cannot make you a real estate professional. The REP designation has to be established by material participation in which real estate LPs are not. But your question um, 
really becomes really relevant once you have established yourself as a real estate professional. I can tell you that there are many people in our investor community um, where they have uh, established themselves as real estate professionals. And at that point, those um, LPs go in the same real estate basket and the depreciation they're getting is used the same way as other real estate that they own as real estate professionals. Um, now, again, I think this is a very, very tricky CPA type question. You got to have a CPA who's very familiar with real estate. You got to have one who really understands the law. I mean, I think that um, in my case, uh, you know, Tom Wheelwright is is um, a very conservative uh, CPA, uh, but conservative in the sense that uh, he won't do anything he thinks is not legal. But uh, you need to have you need to make sure that your CPA feels comfortable with this. And frankly, uh, this is a situation where you may uh, need to talk to a few different CPAs because, well, if you have somebody who's telling you you can't do something, whereas you've got a bunch of people around you who are who are doing it and their CPAs say that, that you can do it, then you might need a new CPA. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, I know it's not really an answer, but it is a a way of telling you that I don't think that, um, you know, that you should settle for the answer. You can't do that. Um, I think those are some of the more time sensitive questions. I think there's a, so I'm going to move on to some other stuff that maybe not quite as time sensitive, uh, with end of the year stuff. Hello, this is, uh, Craig Lesler Buck. I wanted to thank you for the podcast that you had in which you had a hotel broker on your podcast, and he had uh, made some recommendations of specific hotel stocks. Um, it was probably two or three months ago that you had him on the podcast. I have a 457 plan, and I did use the uh, CARES Act to take out $200,000, $100,000 withdrawal, plus $100,000 loan, but the rest of the money that was in there in my 457 plan has to stay with the plan because I'm still a state employee and um, it's self-directed but only in the stock market. So I was able to take your recommendation and put it into those three hotel stocks and those hotel stocks are up Apple in and I forgot the other one, the third one, but they're up tremendously. Um, So I just want to thank you for that. Well, Craig, I'm uh, glad to hear that that worked out for you. Uh, Again, that was a if you go back, I can't remember what number it was. It was basically the the it, the, it was an interview called "Should You Invest uh, in uh, in Hotels?" It's something I, I think is something that is uh, worthwhile in the future. Um, and what's interesting about I think what's interesting about that is that you know I had this guy on the show who's a broker here in California. Um, and, you know, he's a really good guy. He was actually has helped a, a, one of my friends who's a hotelier uh, who's very successful uh, with developing his portfolio. And uh, the funny thing about it was I had him on there and a lot of times people, you know, try to sell their services and, you know, they you know, basically are looking for clients. And when I asked this guy, uh, uh, Steve, if he, uh, you know, if, you know, if, what he recommended right now, he basically said, well, right now it's, you know, it's tough to get any lending on these things because of COVID, et cetera. But I'm looking at these, you know, these, 
these stocks, which were basically REITs that were just got crushed with um, with COVID. And he said, you know, if, if it were me, that's where how I would invest in these things right now. And that was really nice of him, right? I mean, that, and I think that's one of the powerful things about the guests and, and people in our community that we have in this show is a lot of time we just have people who are just really good at what they do and they give you real information. And, you know, he was honest. He could have just told you, hey, come call me in. We'll figure something out. But he was like, well, probably the smartest thing is just to buy these REITs. And he gave names of three REITs. And it sounds like it did really well for Craig. So I'm glad that worked out for you, Craig. Worth the price of admission uh, on the podcast, I guess. All right, next question. Hello, Buck. Um, uh, my name is Jim He Parkin. I'm a physician. I've been listening to your podcast for uh, uh, about a year. Um, thank you so much for the great information. Um, I um, it's been about five years since I got out of my um, residency training, and I still have about um, $160,000 of um, student loan debt at about 5.875% um, interest rates, um, supposed to be, be paid off, um, in, in 20 years. And I have, I think about 17 more years left to go. Um, after listening to your podcast and reading rich dad, poor dad, I got, I got into real estate and, um, this year, this past year, I've, uh, I sold some of my rental properties and I got into about six um, commercial syndication deals and um, some multifamily and then self-storage um, investments. Um, and I have the option um, after selling a, a single family home, I have the option either to get into three more syndication deals by the end of this year or to completely pay off all my student loans and I'm um, debating which one is a better option right now because um, the the uh, syndication deals that I'm looking at they say well the the return annual return will be about 20 percent 17 to 20 percent annualized return for the next five years which sounds great um, so if that's if, if that turns out to be you know real then um, it'll be worthwhile going for the syndication deals instead of paying off my student loans. But at the same time, I also, um, it's, it's, a, it's a risk getting to any kind of um, investment because there's a chance that I might just lose money because I'm giving my money away to people um, who are going to be controlling the, uh, the, the assets. So I keep on going back and forth. Should I pay off my student loans completely in, you know, start from zero with peace of mind or should I take advantage of this opportunity that I uh, made this the sale of my single family home I have a big chunk of cash that I can just use to pay off my student loans and be done with it so um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of other physicians who've been through med school who took out um, student loans have the same um, you know debate in their mind so if you can answer this questions uh, question for me and also for other physicians I would really appreciate it Thank you. Well, again, Ginny, I, I would just say that, um, you know, I, it's a tough situation because it's, you know, an advice question. And I just, it's hard for me to give people advice because I think, you know, and I think there are legal ramifications, et cetera, uh, and, uh, and all that. But let me put myself in your position and, and let me tell you how I'd be thinking about it. 
generally speaking, and, and I did, I was in this position where I had student loans, et cetera, at one point. Um, for me, what it really came down to is, is math. Did I believe that I could take the money uh, and actually get a better return from my investments than the interest rate uh, that I was paying on the loans? Now, my interest rates were my interest rates. I believe back when I had them were lower than five point eight seven five. Uh, that's you know pretty high, but I think that that's really what I would be contemplating uh, in my in in my mind is you know can I invest and beat the interest rate uh, confidently? Um, so what would I do? Uh, well, what did I do? Well, I did invest in real estate. Uh, I did get far better returns and eventually just kind of, you know, slugged out those uh, uh, those student loans because they seemed fairly insignificant. They became a nuisance more than anything else. But, um, you know, I used my dry powder to try to create capital rather than to pay down debt. Now, obviously... That is a controversial approach, but I am not exactly, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not typical in terms of, you know, what people say about this stuff. You know, I'm not the guy who says erase all your debt first because, you know, I, I think that there is a tremendous, um, you know, there's a tremendous uh, power in being able to use your cash to create more cash. But I do think if you focus on it in terms of do I think my returns will be better if I invest them uh, than in you know the interest rate that I'm paying, I think that's a good way to think about it in general. Um, you know, I, I I personally, you know, let's just take for example, you know, the ATM stuff that we've been talking about. I mean, it's a good example where you know there's a, uh, again it's a, a Reg D five hundred six C credit investor limited thing but you know you've got essentially a uh, you know 20 over 22 point something percent per year you know fixed return for for seven years to me uh, you know that that ends up the internal rate of return on that ends up you know far exceeding the 5.8 percent I mean that is something that pays on a monthly basis for me I'd probably be looking at something like that um, looking at something with cash flow, um, you know, looking at a, looking at real estate, uh, and, uh, you know, projects that are going to give me good returns and that have some cash flow so that I can pay off, uh, those loans as they come. That's kind of what I would be doing. But again, I don't want to give you, um, advice per se, but, um, think about it this way. Think about it as anything else. Like, can you do better than 5.87 percent? Uh, with your investments. And if the answer is that you can do 10%, well, then, you know, you're paying your 5.87 and you're taking another 4% home. So that that's how I look at it. But, you know, everybody looks at this stuff differently, I think. Okay, I think we have time for one more question on this week's uh, Ask Buck. Hi, Buck. This is Peter from New York. Uh, I want to thank you for all the great content and the great investment opportunities you brought to us. My question is a bit of a follow-up from some things you've previously discussed around being a real estate professional. Uh, I know I'm not a real estate professional, and my only passive income is from these types of investments. So 
the losses they generate, I can only use to offset income from passive investments. And as a result, I can't use all the losses every year. But from my research, it looks like those losses can be carried forward to future years so that they can be used on an ongoing basis, and especially in the year where the investment is sold, likely generating a very large gain, uh, those carry forward losses could offset that. So while I can't get the immediate benefit a real estate professional can, it does seem like I, I won't lose the losses and will ultimately be able to use them and not get burned in the end. I just wanted to see if that was consistent with your thinking and it's hopefully not as bad as I thought it might be. Thank you. A uh, good question, uh, Peter. Uh, that is, um, listen, it's, uh, a, you know, I'm, again, I'm not a CPA, but I'll tell you that I'm about a hundred percent sure that your losses in these things carry forward indefinitely. Um, you know, basically all of the losses that you're accruing vis-a-vis depreciation, et cetera, in, in real estate or whatever, uh, they don't just magically disappear. Eventually, you know, you're going to, you're going to use them. Um, you know, and, and the funny thing is that in some cases, uh, you might even try to accumulate these kinds of losses, even though you know uh, that you're not going to be using them in the same year. Now, let me give you an example of that because it might be relevant uh, to some people. You know, uh, we know, for example, that bonus depreciation is set to expire uh, in 2022. And we also know that there's probably a pretty good chance. Well, almost a guarantee if if the Senate is overturned uh, to back to the uh, Democratic Party, uh, that that will be reversed very quickly, and there will not be you know this unlimited bonus depreciation, um, you know perhaps as early as sometime uh, early in twenty twenty one. We'll see, but certainly by twenty twenty two, it's it's set to expire anyway. So there's a good chance we won't have it anymore. So right now, because of this bonus depreciation uh, provision, we are able to deduct a significant portion uh, of our real estate investments like you've done um, because of cost segregation analysis and bonus depreciation. Um, I should point out again that that the ATM fund that's still open for 2020 depreciation also allows you to take 100% of your investment as bonus depreciation in the first year. So even if you're not using it this year, you may say, well, if I accumulate big chunks of those losses now, I might not be able to accumulate them as quickly as I need them later uh, when you have passive gains that you want to write off. So again, going back to the idea that we all really should be focusing on essentially one of two things, either, you know, you become a real estate professional and you're able to, you know, activate all these passive losses vis-a-vis real estate and, you know, use them against all your other active income. That's one thing. That's not where most people are going to be because most people simply don't have the ability to give up their job and become full-time real estate people. But if you, the other option is to build that, you know, that passive income bucket. And I hate the word bucket in this regard, but, but that's really what the way you look at it uh, through all of the ways that we've talked about, you know, several times on this show, whether that's, you know, accumulation with, 
dividends through real estate or ATM machines or something like that, or you know, uh, more more potentially with greater acceleration if you can figure out some business activity or take part of your business and realize, hey, that's been passive all along. Um, you know, there are so many opportunities here to build passive income. I really think that that's what we need to be doing. That's what everybody in our community probably should really be focused on and thinking about how do we do this? Because listen, there's always these like, you know, tax um, strategies and sometimes they're, you know, pretty controversial as we talked about when it comes to conservation easements. Sometimes they're like oil and gas where you're like, yeah, but I don't know if I really want to invest in oil and gas. And so we just let the tax, uh, you know, let the, let the, let the tax wag the tail, so to speak. And, and, you know, doing something better than that would be to actually create income and then allow your investments that you want to do, uh, like in real estate, and let those losses actually become active and use them because you have enough passive income. That's where we ought to be focusing. That's where everybody, I think, um, who's listening ought to be focusing. And hopefully, uh, we can continue building on you know that conversation uh, in the year to come. So anyway, that is it uh, for questions this week. Uh, we will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. And uh, that was uh, it for round one of Ask Buck. I do want to thank uh, all of those who have submitted questions. We have a lot of them still. So if we didn't get to yours yet, uh, do not fret. We will do so in short order. But I did want to make sure that we got some of these time-sensitive questions in. That's why this one, I think, was so uh, tax-heavy. Um, uh, with that said, uh, I do want to also remind you that if you like this kind of setup, a lot of you know uh, questions and answers, and you're learning a lot from that, I, I do really want to, again, remind you that there's something called Wealth Formula Network, well, Formula Network is, um, you know, it's it's kind of an offspring of our course, uh, Your Roadmap to uh, Real Wealth. If you go to wealthformularoadmap.com, you can check that out. And uh, you basically get membership uh, in Wealth Formula Network with that course. So that sort of builds a foundation. And then you, you know, then you can interact with others who are in that network. It's a virtual community. Uh, there's probably, you know, just under 100 people in there right now. And, you know, we have these bi-weekly Zoom uh, mastermind calls. We have, uh, you know, the Facebook group and stuff. People really enjoy it. So I would check that out. The last thing I will uh, mention is if you like the show, again, make sure to, uh, you know, go to wealthformula.com. Uh, and and there's a link there where it says give us a five-star review. If you think we earn it, do it. Uh, subscribe to the show. That's what helps us move up in the rankings. Uh, that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. 
Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.